0: it's the pages and popcorn podcast
1: special crossover episode
0: hello i'm matt and this is ghostthropology
1: hello i'm kalia and this is also the pages and popcorn podcast
0: yes once again for a second year in a row we bring you a Halloween special, the most feared thing of all, the Crossover Podcast.
1: Dun, dun, dun. Yes, that's right. For those of you who don't know, Ghost is a podcast that Matthew does, where he talks about folklore and why it matters and why we care. And he tells a folklore story or ghost stories, and then he talks about the anthropological impact of them and... Basically, like I said, why we are fixated on them and what matters and what's interesting about them.
0: And for those who are unaware, Kalia does the Pages and Popcorn podcast, a podcast in which she and a co-host discuss a movie and the book that the movie was based on, compare and contrast, and discuss why some changes were made.
1: That is correct. And so for today's crossover, we we had to try to find a folklore ghost story haunted something book that was then made into a movie. But here's, here's the thing. Most of those are nonfiction and then are not made into movies or it's a fictionalized book that's made into a movie. And then that's not really the folklore thing that Matthew as the ghost anthropologist does. So it was a little bit tricky to find something that would actually work. Last year we did A book about a haunted house that I can't pronounce.
0: The Amityville Horror.
1: That's the one. And it was a fun episode. So this year, we decided to do something a little bit different.
0: We decided to talk about John Keel's book, The Mothman Prophecy, and the film from 2002, loosely based on that book. The book and the film, however, are both fairly loosely based on actual folklore that developed in West Virginia in the 1960s.
1: So that's what we're going to talk about today. But real quick, before we do that, I just want to remind you guys that you can find out about the Ghost Propology podcast and the Pages and Popcorn podcast at KMMAMedia.com. You can support the show there. You can find a backlog of episodes for both shows there. All of the show notes are there. The Email addresses for both shows are there. It's pages and popcorn podcast at gmail.com and the email for ghostthropology
0: ghostthropology at gmail.com.
1: It's a really cool place to check out again. Uh, oh, and this is Halloween. Happy Halloween. And I know a lot of you are already starting to do your holiday shopping. We have a store at the KMMA Media website where you can buy anthropology and Pages and Popcorn swag and support us and do your holiday shopping all in one place. So very excited about that.
0: As an anthropologist, trained professional anthropologist, and therefore an expert on human culture and behavior, I can say with authority that the swag you can buy is the sort of thing that humans have sought. For centuries, no, in fact, millennia. And you can have it now.
1: You know, it's so true. In the days of yore, people were often walking around going, You know what I really want? I want a sticker that can double as a bookmark. Yeah, man. Well, you can buy stickers in our store. You can buy t shirts. You can buy the Ghost Apology security blanket if you are scared while you're listening to the Ghost Apology episodes, all sorts of fun things. So go check it out, kmmamedia.com. And now, on with the show so like matthew said the movie that we're going to talk about was based on a book and the book was based on a ghost story so matthew our ghost anthropologist please tell us this ghost story
0: although in this podcast we will necessarily give a lot of focus to john keel's book the mothman Prophecies*. There are other versions of the Mothman tale that are much more focused on the Mothman itself. These stories are a mix of fact, speculation, and fiction, much like all good folklore. For the facts, in November of 1966, the Point Pleasant Register, the local newspaper in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, on the east bank of the Ohio River, ran a story with the headline, Couple See Man-Sized Bird, Creature, Something. The couples in question were riding in a car near the old munitions plant just outside of Point Pleasant when they saw a creature that appeared to be about six feet tall or perhaps a bit taller with wings, no feathers, and two large glowing red eyes. They sped away and the thing took flight and followed them, keeping up with them even when they were speeding along the road at 100 miles per hour. They eventually got away, or else the creature stopped pursuing and they told their tale to the police, and the next day, the story appeared in the newspaper. Over the next few days, several people reported seeing the creature. The sighting slowed down a bit after that, but continued for over a year, through December of 1967. There is some variation in what people claim to see. Some said it had feathers, others said that it did not. Some claimed that it had a head, and others that the eyes were simply on top of the torso. Some say it flapped its wings as it flew, and others say that it spread its wings and then rose into the air like a helicopter, without the wings moving at all. But all agreed that it was gray, around the size of a large man, and had glowing red eyes. By comparison with some other prominent denizens of folklore, this is actually rather remarkable consistency between witnesses. A few days before the Silver Bridge collapse in December of 1967... It is said that people observed the Mothman perched on the bridge. The Silver Bridge connected Point Pleasant with the Ohio side of the river. Some people believe that the Mothman was a warning omen sent to alert people to trouble, but that failure to understand and heed the warning led to the collapse of the bridge. Others believe that the Mothman was not a warning at all, but the cause of the collapse and of many other tragedies. One possible origin often given for the Mothman is that he is the result of what is often called the Curse of Cornstalk. The Shawnee leader, Pokaleskwa, often referred to as Chief Cornstalk by English speakers, had long been involved in interactions between European settlers and Native Americans, often as a combatant against colonists, including the Battle of Point Pleasant in 1774. And other times working to assure neutrality of the people he represented in 1777 he made a diplomatic visit to fort randolph in what is now west virginia the soldiers there suspicious of him captured and executed him according to local lore he cursed the colonists efforts and some say that the mothman and the trail of destruction left in point pleasant is the result of this curse however Dr. Emily Zarka, who works on PBS Digital's Storied series, tracked down the likely source of this story. The curse likely came from a school play written and performed in the 1930s and was later added to the Mothman tale. Although Mothman sightings died down in Point Pleasant after the bridge collapsed, Mothman sightings have continued throughout the world. A 2002 newspaper from the nation of Georgia, a former Soviet republic, Claims that people observed the Mothman in the days prior to the 1999 bombing of an apartment building in Moscow. There are widely circulating claims that people saw the Mothman in and near Pripyat, the site of the Chernobyl nuclear reactor, in the days before the reactor exploded. And, of course, there are those who claim they have spotted the Mothman in photos and video of the September 2001 attack on the World Trade Center. There was most recently a reported rash of sightings in Chicago in 2017 though no disaster is associated with them. Explanations for what the Mothman is run the gamut. Some, following John Keel, believe that the Mothman is a manifestation of some supernatural force that can take many forms. Others hold that the Mothman is a ghostly harbinger of doom, similar in some respects to the Banshee, but quieter and weirder. Some claim that it is a creature that resulted from experiments at a former high-security military facility near Point Pleasant. Others hold that it is simply an as-yet-unidentified animal. More down-to-earth explanations hold that it is a bird, both barred owls and sandhill cranes being the most often cited examples, and both being present near Point Pleasant. And that people simply didn't recognize it due to the time of night during the first sighting, and a mix of poor night vision and priming to see something weird during subsequent sightings. There have even been people who claim it to have been the result of a local teenager in a Halloween costume, scaring people on the outskirts of town. Personally, after doing a lot of reading over the years, my money is on the initial sightings being birds and later sightings being a mix of different things. But regardless, the Mothman has become a fixture of modern American folklore.
1: So that's the original folklore, the story, and from what I have read, the book that John Kill wrote was in part inspired by that. And then eventually what he said was added into all of that folklore of the Mothman. So he's going to do the book recap. Normally on Pages and Popcorn, I do both recaps, but since this is a crossover episode, we're changing it up a little bit. But before he does that, it's interesting to note though, that as he's about to do the recap of this book, there's not a lot of Mothman in this book that's called the Mothman Prophecies. It's much more about, as you're about to hear, UFOs and men in black. So There's
0: also not a lot of prophecy in the book called the Mothman Prophecies.
1: In fact, I keep calling it the Mothman Chronicles. <laughs> By accident, it's in my notes as the Mothman Chronicles. I have referred to it as such to Matthew multiple times in the last week as we've been preparing for this. I, I think I'm getting confused with the Martian Chronicles, <laughs> and the, cause, cause, but it also because they're really there's not a whole lot of prophecy happening over here. But go ahead, Matthew, give us a brief recap of the Mothman prophecy book.
0: The Mothman Prophecy is an allegedly nonfiction book released in 1975 and detailing John Keel's experiences between November 1966 and December 1967 investigating a rash of UFO sightings and the appearance of a strange creature dubbed the Mothman. Keel is more interested in putting forth some ideas about UFO occupants than in telling a straightforward story, and the book does not really tell the story of Point Pleasant and the Mothman in a strict linear fashion, but rather, that story is told in snippets during chapters in which Kiel develops his larger thesis that UFOs are not spacecrafts from other planets, but rather are the newest manifestation of some other force or, or intelligence that exists alongside our own. In Kiel's thinking, UFOs, cryptids such as Bigfoot and, of course, the Mothman, demons, fairies, witches, vampires, and ghosts are all manifestations of the same earthly but inhuman source. Although Keel allows that the forces or entities might be manifestations created by mass belief and sustained by the human mind, he seems to favor the idea that they are something outside of humanity. To Keel, the purpose or intent of this outside force is unknown, possibly unknowable, but it probably does not have humanity's best interests in mind. More likely, we are either resources to be used or playthings from which to derive entertainment. The story to the degree that you get it in the book. In November 1966, residents of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, in the Ohio River Valley, began seeing a strange bipedal winged creature with glowing red eyes. Dubbed the Mothman by newspapers, the creature was sighted throughout the region for the next year, often chasing vehicles. Alongside the appearance of the Mothman, UFOs were sighted routinely throughout the United States in this year, but were especially concentrated in the Ohio River Valley, and particularly in the vicinity of Point Pleasant. Homes near UFO flight paths, or over which UFOs hovered, would experience flying objects, mysterious voices, strange apparitions, and other manifestations of a haunted house, for weeks or even months after the UFO passed over or by the house. Keel strongly suggests that ghosts and UFOs are related. So yes, this is a ghost episode, not a UFO report. While a significant portion of the Point Pleasant population spotted UFOs, and UFOs began appearing so regularly that many locations were host to gatherings of people who'd come to watch the strange craft, a smaller number of people were directly targeted by the beings within the UFOs. And these contacts ranged from potentially deadly chases down dark roads to friendly contact with beings promising peace and brotherhood. All of the beings actually witnessed appeared more or less human, with some strange traits such as sunburned skin or dark complexions, pointy noses and fingers, and dark hypnotic eyes. As events moved on, many individuals matching the same description began appearing in town, or perhaps they were already present in town before the Mothman appeared. It's unclear from the text. Regardless, they are now dressed not in their silvery space clothes, but instead in clothes that are a decade or two out of date and that are usually, but not always, black. And they are dubbed the men in black.
1: Dun, dun, dun. Sorry, go ahead.
0: <laughs> the men in black approach contactees as well as those with an interest in UFOs, sometimes asking questions, sometimes threatening them, and sometimes simply saying nonsensical things or asking really bizarre questions. The men in black have strange voices and odd inflection, seem puzzled by everyday items such as ink pens, often request glasses of water, and and occasionally will ask for bizarre foods, such as, in one case, a handful of salt, which they will immediately consume. The men in black often claim to be government officials, pretending to be military officers, though they never wear uniforms. Additional entities soon begin to make themselves known to contactees and through the contactees make themselves known to Keel. The two most prominent such entities call themselves Apple and Indrid Cold. Both made themselves known to contactees by introducing themselves and then taking the contactees and trips in their crafts, allegedly to other planets. Initially, the contactees seem to benefit from these relationships, having their minds expanded and learning more about the universe. But over time, they began to be outcasts from their communities and to suffer various social problems and mental disorders. As time goes on, the men in black seem to focus on certain individuals, with John Keel himself being the center of their attention. Keel also discovers that, whether he is in Point Pleasant or back home in New York, he receives odd phone calls from people who want to ask him questions or provide him with information. Sometimes the information is accurate, and sometimes it is false. His mail begins to be tampered with, and his phone line is tapped, apparently by the phone company itself, which also sets up a secret second phone line connecting to his apartment in New York. Some of the phone calls seem to be from people he knows, but they lack knowledge of their own biographies, and when Keel speaks with these friends later, he discovers that they never called him, and what's more, many of his friends received calls from somebody claiming to be Keel and sounding just like him. But at times when Keel knows he could not have made those phone calls. During this time, contactees calling Keel begin to help the various entities, including Indrid Cold and Apple, speak with Keel, either by relaying messages or by channeling the entities while speaking with Keel over the phone. When Keel visits West Virginia, he finds that people frequently know what he is doing and where he is going, even before he does himself, because someone else, presumably informed by one of the UFO-related entities, had told them. The entities begin to spout apocalyptic prophecies, foretelling conflicts between nations and the deaths of prominent people, including a prediction of the assassination of the Pope, leading to worldwide power failures to be followed by war. This last prophecy results in John Keel sitting on a mountaintop in West Virginia on the appointed day, emergency supplies in hand, waiting for the power to go out after the Pope is killed. When this does not come to pass, Kiel decides that the entities are toying with him, a feeling that is compounded when many of the prophecies come close to, but fall just short of, coming true months later, such as a failed assassination of the Pope that matched many of the details that Kiel had been provided. As 1967 rolls on, many of the entities that had previously put on a benevolent face, such as Apple and Injured Cold, begin to turn openly sinister, telling the contactees frightening things apparently simply to scare them, and forcing the contactees to sign contracts, turning over their souls to the entities, and then forcing the contactees to call John so that Keel can argue for the contracts to be disregarded and the contactees' souls left alone. Though Keel thinks this was all for show and that the contracts never had any power anyway. Keel also begins to think that the missing time reported by many UFO contactees may not be set aside for examination or medical experiments as is so often assumed, but is instead time when the entities possess the bodies of the contactees, rather like demons, and use them for all manner of evil, up to and including political assassinations. During this time, Keel is informed that something bad will happen on December 15, 1967. Immediately after, the president lights the White House Christmas tree on live television. He is led to believe that something will result in a large portion of the U.S. power grid shutting down, and it is suggested to him that it may be the result of an explosion in the Point Pleasant area. In December, John Keogh returns to Point Pleasant, and meeting his friend, Mary Heyer, the editor of the local newspaper, he learns that UFO sightings have died down, going from being a nightly occurrence earlier in the year to being rare events with none having happened in the last month or so with the exception of one recent mothman sighting the mothman has likewise made itself scarce rather than being a relief however this has led the people of the town to feel as if something very bad is about to happen miss Hyer tells keel that she's been having a recurring nightmare of people drowning in the ohio river as brightly colored packages float on the water above them keel returns to new york feeling unsettled Then the night of December 15th, just after the live broadcast of the lighting of the White House Christmas tree, there is a special news report describing the collapse of the Silver Bridge, a major bridge connecting Point Pleasant, West Virginia to the towns on the Ohio side of the Ohio River, making Mary Heyer's nightmare into a terrifying reality. The bridge collapsed at rush hour and was filled with vehicles resulting in scores of deaths. Although the collapse is found to be due to mechanical failure, Mary Heyer tells Keel that there had been reports of men dressed like a particular variety of man in black spotted climbing the bridge the day before the collapse. Keel believes that he was led to feel that there would be a major power failure and that there would be an explosion in order to keep his attention away from the bridge, to prevent him from warning anyone. Why the UFO entities would want the bridge to collapse is never explored, though there is a discussion earlier in the book about blood sacrifice, So perhaps Kiel intends for us to consider this a mass human sacrifice. And with that, the book comes to an end.
1: Okay. I just have to say before I do my movie recap, that that was a cohesive narrative story that you just told, and it is not at all what the book was, because the book was so all over the place. I kept getting, it was like 1966, 1967, 1966, 1967, 1965, 1972, 1966, 1966 and it was just, okay, we're going to talk about it, but well done, you. Round of applause, because there is no freaking way I could have done a recap half as good as that, because holy crap, that was, that was amazing. Okay, so that all came out in 19... 19- Seventy-five, right?
0: 1975,
1: 1975. Yep. And in 2002, they decided to make this into a movie. So the Mothman Prophecies is a 2002 American supernatural horror mystery film directed by Mark Pellington and starring Richard Gere and Laura Linney. Movie recap. Here we go. Washington Post columnist John Klein and his wife Mary are very much in love and are buying a house with a fun sex closet. Later, they are involved in a car accident where Mary swerves to avoid a huge flying black figure. John survives the crash unscathed, but Mary is hospitalized. There she is diagnosed with an unrelated brain tumor and shortly thereafter passes away. John discovers her sketchbook of terrifying drawings of moth-like creatures with red eyes that she drew over and over while hospitalized. He finds this notebook, by the way, because a creepy orderly tells him that she had been drawing angels. Two years later, John attempts to drive from DC to Richmond, but loses time, inexplicably finds himself hundreds of miles off his route. Driving in the middle of the night, his car breaks down and he walks to a nearby house to get help. The owner, Gordon reacts violently to John's appearance and holds him at gunpoint. Local police officer Connie Mills diffuses the situation while Gordon explains that this is the third consecutive night that John has knocked on his door at 2.30 a.m., asking to use the phone, of course. Connie and John try to make some sense of these events. John stays at a local motel and ponders how he ended up so far from his original destination. Where is he anyway? In Point Pleasant, by the way, on the border of West Virginia and Ohio not at all close to Washington, D.C. or Richmond, Virginia. Officer Mills discloses to John that many strange things have been occurring the past few weeks and that people have reported seeing a large-winged creature like a giant moth with red eyes. She also tells him about a strange dream that she had in which the words, Wake Up Number 37, were spoken to her while she drowned in cold water surrounded by wrapped gifts. During a conversation with Gordon, he reveals to John that he has heard voices coming from his sink, telling him that in Denver, 99 will die. While discussing the day's events at a local diner, John notices that the news is showing the story of an airplane crash in Denver that killed 99 passengers. The next night, Gordon frantically explains that the voices in his head emanate from a being named Injured Cold. Later on, Gordon calls John and says that he's standing next to Injured Cold. While John keeps cold on the line, Officer Mills runs off to check on Gordon cold gives john details about his life that only he knows and john tests cold with questions that only he could know if he were in the same room with him like where's my watch it's in your shoe under your bed what is in my hand chapstick john is convinced that cold is a supernatural being when mills gets to gordon's house he says that he's been asleep and he didn't call john this particular event escalates a string of supernatural calls to john's motel room from cold one tells him that there will be a great tragedy on the ohio river later john receives a cryptic call from gordon and rushes to his home to check on him he finds gordon outside dead from exposure and he has been dead for hours john becomes obsessed with the local ledgeman, the mothman and arranges to meet an expert on the subject alexander leake Alexander explains the Mothman's nature. They are forever creatures who just are and always show up in visions just before great tragedies like Chernobyl, etc. He discourages John from becoming further involved. However, when John learns that the governor plans to tour a chemical plant located on the Ohio River the following day, he becomes convinced the tragedy will occur. Officer Mills and the governor ignore his warnings and then, well, nothing happens during the tour. Soon after, John receives a mysterious letter that instructs him to await a call from his deceased wife Mary back in Georgetown on Christmas Eve at 12 noon. He returns home to wait for her call. On Christmas Eve, Officer Mills calls John to convince him to ignore the phone call from Mary, return to Point Pleasant, and join her and her family for their Christmas Eve dinner. She says he shouldn't be alone on that night as it's no way to be. Though anguished, John agrees. He starts to leave his house, and the phone rings. Distressed, he doesn't answer it, but even after it is unplugged and thrown across the room, it continues to ring. He runs away. He drives back to Point Pleasant. As John reaches the silver bridge, malfunctioning traffic lights cause traffic congestion on the entire bridge as he walks onto the bridge to investigate as you do the bolts and supports of the bridge start to strain the bridge comes apart and john realizes that the prophesized tragedy on the ohio river is about the bridge not the power plant as the bridge collapses officer mills's car falls into the water john jumps in after her and pulls her from the river to safety as the two sit in the back of an ambulance, they're informed that 36 people have been killed. That makes Connie number 37 from her dream. Text appears that tells us that the cause of the bridge collapse was never fully determined. Although the Mothman has been sighted in other parts of the world, it was never again seen in Point Pleasant. And then the real credits roll and we're done.
0: So one thing, I just looked this up actually, because I kept it bugged me when we were watching the movie that he was coming from Washington, D.C. to Point Pleasant and having to cross the bridge. I just pulled it up. He would have had to drive quite a way out of his way into Ohio and then south to end up on the side of the bridge that he was on <laughs> at the end of the movie. So I have no idea what the hell he was doing.
1: (laughs) Well, maybe he lost time. You know, that happened. Yes. Okay, one more note about my recap of the movie before we get into our discussion. The entire film is shot from weird angles, shot from above as if people are being watched around corners, through windows, around other things. There's also a lot of close-ups of eyes and lights and just general over-editing to create what I'm assuming they meant to be a scary, scary atmosphere.
0: Yeah, there there are points where it was actually effective and there are points where it just sort of left you rolling your eyes.
1: I think it was over-edited. Yeah, I would agree with that. It definitely... Okay, so there's... There's a good couple of good things about this movie. One is that they don't really show you the Mothman. I think it's always scarier when you don't see the thing. Um apparently we only see it like a handful of times. I looked this up and one of the times that you see it is in like this jump scare uh mirror, yeah, like in a bathroom mirror. He slams it shut and you like it's half a second and it's like a scary thing. It looks like a face. And at that point, he thinks he's being haunted by his dead wife. So you almost think it's his dead wife, you know, face, but it's not. It's the Mothman. There were definitely a couple of good things with the editing, you know, to, that made it eerie and disjointed, not disjointed, but um, unsettling. It definitely mm-hmm. made it unsettling as you are watching it. But like I said, I feel like it was overused because there was never a normal angle or shot. It was always stylized and kind of overwrought and it kind of went beyond camp and into cringe
0: for yeah. me but- i i would agree with that there another thing is a frequent kind of visual motif in the film was glowing red dots always in pairs which makes sense because the Mothman had glowing red eyes, allegedly. And so, of course, you're going to have you know that show up. But it was there so constantly that it became distracting rather than being a thing that you could kind of notice and might be a little unnerving. It just began to get kind of comical.
1: Yeah. Like I said, eerie, but then excessive. So Yeah.
0: And I would say that that's true of a lot of what was in the film, which is really a bit of a shame, because I think that in some ways it was a fairly effective, just sort of creepy, supernatural horror movie. But there were things that the filmmakers did that just kind of could yank you out of it a little too easily.
1: Well, I I mean, okay, so horror is not my genre, as you know, as you all Mm -hmm. know. But yes, I mean, the eeriness was effective, but it was so ridiculous. I know some people think that this was very effective. It wasn't actually very scary to me. There was a couple of startle moments and it definitely was creepy, but because we never really understood what the whole, like, okay, here's the thing. There's the Mothman and then there's Indrid, who is a Mothman, is not a Mothman. In in the book, there's this discussion that, there's the Mothman and the UFOs and the men in black, and they're all connected and this is how, but in the movie we never got any of that connection and there was no real UFO stuff. It was just, there's the Mothman, but there's also Indrid Cold who can talk to people. So, but, and it kind of almost implied that he was the Mothman that like the Mothman had a name but also like they didn't really care about humans but they're also here to kind of freak us out. Like it was so confusing. And if you don't understand somebody's motivation, Then you don't understand why you should or shouldn't be scared right and so like then the movie had to add in this whole thing about the dead wife so we could have an almost cliche overwrought ghost thing about the wife calling and is it going to be her on the phone and is it her that he saw and is in the mirror and like looking at her picture and the close-ups of the eyes and like so in one way he's definitely just being haunted by potentially the ghost of his wife. And that could have been its own movie. But then you Mm -hmm. throw in all this Mothman crap and then you throw in the injured coal guy and then you throw in that, like, somebody had a prophetic dream and then you fucking destroy a bridge for no reason. Like, it was just all over the place. And then, like, there was no end or resolution. It just was like, yep, that happened, the end. And we don't see how the people are dealing with it, which was really frustrating because, fear and post-traumatic stress is a really big thing and this almost got there it was like here's this guy who has lost his wife and he's dealing with the stress and he's dealing with grief and how he's like obsessed about something else and who wouldn't become potentially obsessed with trying to understand something that is unexplained when your wife was taken from you in this like bizarre accident but then she also had a brain tumor like that's just oh my gosh you know it's out of it's just, it's hard to even imagine. Right. He even says that you're driving down the road and suddenly like the universe looks at you, points at you, and then like your whole life gets fucked. Right. So like, I totally understand why he like kind of descends into this obsessive thing and then why the haunting is really powerful, but then there's no it doesn't go, and I'm not saying it has to get tied up with a bow. He doesn't have to marry the, sh- you know, the Connie Mills or like live happily ever after or have like a cathartic come to Jesus moment. But like, there should be something that happens after the fucking bridge goes down. Also, the bridge coming down was really fucking scary. So, that was probably the the best part of the movie. Not the best, but like, it was very compelling. It was because bridges are scary, and I'm scared of bridges already. <laughs>
0: So, so there.
1: <laughs>
0: the bridge was the highlight of the movie. The bridge coming down as far as its ability to get you. Because it was building tension. It was unnerving. Um, The thing I mentioned earlier with the glowing red dots. Well, as you see cars falling into the river and you see their taillights uh, shining up through the water. It was a, a genuinely powerful image. I don't have the same problem you do with the fact that they don't carry on with anything after that. I actually kind of like the fact that they're really vague as to what everything is. I do think that they um, th- there's a phrase that gets repeated by the supernatural entities, whether it be the ghost of his wife or um, Indrid Cold or something else, which is, I'll see you in time, she'll see you in time, you'll see me in time. It's always, you're going to see X in time, and that gets repeated but only by the supernatural things, which I think implies that they're all the same thing. And so, also that
1: they're, they're able to time travel maybe, or that they don't really understand our concept of time the way we, you know, have a concept of time.
0: Which... In the, if it, I, that might be where they were starting with it, because certainly the book discusses that. But in the film, I didn't get the impression that it had anything to do with time other than it was a way of saying, yeah, that'll happen later. But I have a vocal tick, which is you will see it in time
1: or like a translation because English yeah. was not my first language. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the thing. Like it it, this monster, this thing, this Mothman was so vague and had all these different components, you know, that it it made it less scary. So it was extra scary because. We didn't see it, and but then like we got like its point of view a couple times, like the monster's point of view, which was like kind of cool from a cinematography standpoint. But
0: well, we we might have gotten the monster's point of view. It was really unclear, and well,
1: that I think that that was heavily implied with the woman looking out the window and then the guy sitting in the car.
0: So the movie came out in two thousand two, and you know this is around the time that the X Files ended. And this movie, The X-Files is heavily influenced by the book, The Mothman Prophecies. When you read the book and you watch that show, it's like, oh, this is where they got a lot of the stuff from. And I think that the movie benefited from The X-Files being around because it was a show which really, there were jump scare moments, but by and large, it really banked on the idea of impending dread and things just being wrong. But you can stretch that in a tv show where you know you'll eventually get some resolution one would hope they never did which is why the later seasons of that show sucked (laughs) um whereas in a movie you expect some sort of payoff around the same time this came out though there was a move to make other horror movies uh that really were built more around atmosphere than payoff Two examples that come to mind is uh, there was one about some people doing uh, renovations in an old psychiatric hospital called, I believe the movie is called Session 9, it might have been called Session 10, and it's similar. It had a big buildup, and although the story concluded, you were kind of left thinking, well, what was all that buildup about? Uh, there was a haunted submarine movie that came out around the similar time called Below, similar thing, big buildup, and then when all is said and done, you're kind of left not sure what to do with all the buildup so this was really kind of of its time the early 2000s late 90s stories like this were a lot more common
1: and I know that that's a thing in horror movies there's not always resolution like the monster dies or the the, you know the helicopter comes and picks the people up off the out of the predator jungle or whatever and then they just float away and that's the end right like even in Jurassic Mm -hmm. Park they get on the helicopter that's the end there's no falling action really it just kind of ends and i know that that happens in horror movies too i it's just it's personally it's not a thing that i like but i Mm -hmm. can understand that it makes sense for this but what you're saying is that was like not just oh this is a trope of this genre but like we're gonna do this on purpose just to leave you unsettled and Mm -hmm. i don't know like i feel like movies and books are like food, sex, and TV, like you should enjoy it and not have to work too hard on it. And like, if you're not satisfied at the end, then something happened, right? You shouldn't be like wondering, wait, is it over? Is that the end? Is that all I get? I don't know. Does that make sense? It was a little disappointing.
0: I I get what you're saying. And there's a lot of people who don't like this particular trope in horror fiction for the reason you're giving. Other people really like it because they feel like it leaves them unsettled and that's something they want. Myself, this is actually one of the lesser offenders. The other movies I cited, I really felt much more left down by.
1: See, and I, I don't mind an ambiguous ending, I think, but like this really just felt like they were like, Oh, I guess we're done. <laughs> like it just, yeah. oh, we ran out of time or well, something. And, I
0: and I think that comes down to their source material. Because that's the book is a long series of rants, and then the bridge collapses. And John Keel says, well, the bridge collapse had something to do with everything I've been writing about, but did it.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Our daughter right now is learning how to write essays, introduction paragraph, and here's your thesis and here's your supporting paragraphs. And then there's a conclusion. And earlier today, when she was writing an opinion essay about cats, she was like, why do I have to have a conclusion? They can't just, can't they just read my introduction paragraph? And I was like, well, you, you have to end it. You have to kind of wrap it all up and remind people and like restate your thesis and, you know, all of those things. And that's what happened in this book he didn't have a conclusion <laughs> he's like banking on the fact that you paid enough attention all the way through that you understand what he's either like implying you know what i'm trying to get to but i i and then like there's and then there's an afterword which almost gets there but i really felt like he needed to and it's not like he wrote this and it came out in 1972 it came out in 1975 he had time yeah. to write a conclusion where's your conclusion john
0: yeah so l- let's talk about the book
1: I hated this book.
0: (laughs) Skipping right to the end, are you? I know,
1: I'm sorry. No patience for this.
0: (laughs) I'll I'll have a bit more to say about the book when we get to the end, when you do the, was it worth your time? I'm going to say there are ways in which it might be worth certain people's times, but I hated this book.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I am not one of those people. I really didn't like the way he arranged the story that, that... and it's not that I need everything to be in chronological order. I consider myself fairly well-read. I understand time shifts. I'm okay with flashbacks. I'm cool with the narrative that moves around. But the way he did it was just so disjointed. And then it literally was just, it, it, it you know how if you just get too much of something, it stops meaning anything. And, you know, it's like too many different radio stations coming at you at the same time. Everything just becomes noise and you can't even parse out the different radio station or the different songs or people talking in a room or whatever it is. This was that because it was like, these people saw a UFO, these people saw a UFO, these people saw a UFO, these people saw a UFO. And all the stories started to repeat and they all started to meld together. Mm -hmm. And it was like one big cacophony of, yeah, okay, a bunch of weird shit happened. But here's the thing. I couldn't tell if that was intentional, like so many things that they all start to blend together and you just have like this growing sense of, oh my God, I'm just, I'm drowning in these stories. Or if it was that he's a bad writer and that it just, he only had one anecdote, but just different characters in the same anecdote. You know, somebody saw it at one o'clock in the morning, the next person had a different name and it was at two o'clock in the morning. But everything else was the same, you
0: know? I think I can answer that. Okay. (laughs) There's a term that you, you hear used a lot amongst people who spend time debating science and pseudoscience. And this term is the Gish Gallup. Okay. And it's named after Dwayne Gish, who is an Australian fundamentalist Christian creationist who likes to try to debate scientists about evolution, you know, trying to prove evolution is all wrong. And that creationism is the only thing that makes sense. And he's developed this debating approach where he will just spout out a whole lot of stuff, most of which is complete nonsense. But then he'll insist that you have to refute every single point he said, or you're wrong and creationism must be true. And it's an effective bit of rhetoric with a lot of audiences. And reading this book, I felt like it was that where John Keel was just shoot, you know, blasting us with all kinds of details with sort of a, yeah, maybe some of this isn't true, but can you prove none of it is, you know, and you can do that at a hot, such a high volume that, you know, eventually you just get overwhelmed and buried. I think he was trying to overwhelm his readers' critical faculties.
1: Yeah. No, you that know. makes sense. I, I think I told you I was on, I think it's page three. Is it page three? I don't have the book because we are sharing a copy and I don't know where it is right now. But like, I think it's page three where he's like, here's this little anecdote, blah, 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 blah. And then he's like, as you know, People can bend spoons with their brains and, you know, telekinetics is a real thing. And then he just keeps going. And I'm like, hold the phone. (laughs) Wait a minute. What? But like, you're not going to try to convince me of that. You're just starting from a place that we've all agreed that psychics are real Telekinesis is real. like, And then there's more things later on. He just kind of sprinkles in. And I know that you probably took exception. There was a couple like just factual. It was like, so it's like people have only been here for this many I, years. I, yeah, like, I'd like
0: to actually discuss that a little bit.
1: OK, yeah. because But my point is that that just it, it lends itself to what you're saying is that he just keeps going and going on this, on this snowball rolling down a hill. And you can't stop it because it just keeps going. And he just assumes you're agreeing with him. And because he never stops monologuing, which is what I'm doing right now, you can never like jump in and be like, hold on, you have to prove what you're saying. You can't just say it. But yes, I know you want to talk about the details of that.
0: Yeah. So if you heard my recap of the book and you think, oh, that sounds like a good, creepy, you know, interesting read. I had to actually go in and pick out the points and then arrange them in order in order to give you that narrative.
1: Yeah, it's quite That's not the way the book,
0: the book is the equivalent of being stuck at the party with the guy who wants to tell you everything you never asked about Bitcoin and won't shut up, (laughs) except he's talking about supernatural things and not Bitcoin, but it's exactly the same effect.
1: Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who is ADD, ADHD, who is trying to tell you a very convoluted story about a bunch of people you've never met. Because that's what this is. Because there's mm-hmm. all the side tangents, you know, and you just have to wait it out. You have to just wait because eventually you'll get back to your name. Most of my friends are ADD or ADHD. I'm very, like, I'm used to this now. You just wait and they'll eventually circle back to like the main point. But there's going to be 27 different tangents. And if they mention somebody's name, they're going to have to tell you how they know them and how you might know them. Oh, from that one thing that you were at. Oh, and that at that one thing. And then it just goes and goes and goes. That was this book.
0: Yeah, that's it, that, yeah. So the book does have some structure. It's not a complete amorphous mess, although it feels that way at times, but the first few chapters of the book are kind of setting the stage in terms, not of what happens specifically in the Ohio Valley, but to try to tell you that John Keel is a well-researched, well-read person who you should trust. The problem is a lot of what he says is just factually wrong. And even in 1975, these things were known to be wrong. He appeals in the first couple of chapters and then at various points throughout the book to anthropology and archaeology quite a bit. And since I'm an archaeologist, I take some professional uh, umbrage with this. So I'm going to just kind of unload here okay (laughs) okay so first off early on he claims that the mound sites in the ohio valley and then you know broadly throughout the midwest and southeastern u.s are the sites of frequent ufo reports which uh, that might be true i don't know but then he says that they are eight thousand plus years old and therefore predate the presence of humans in north america okay he wrote this in 1975 by the early 1960s, we knew that people had been in North America for at least 12,000 years. So 4,000 years, more than 4,000 years earlier than John Keel is telling us. And this wasn't a secret. This wasn't hidden in academic journals. There were television shows about this. National Geographic wrote about it all the time. Had this guy visited a library and he lived in New York with one of the world's greatest libraries, he would have known this was nonsense. I don't know if he didn't know and didn't care to look it up or if that just fit the story he was telling so that's what he was going to go with the other thing is the mound builder sites are not eight thousand plus years old the oldest dates to around five thousand five hundred years old so again just factually wrong he also claims that the building of the mound sites was beyond the capabilities of native americans because they were laid out with mathematical precision you may recognize this as the basic argument behind almost every ancient alien's claim. It's racist nonsense. In the late 19th century, so almost a full hundred years before John Keel wrote this book, the Smithsonian sponsored a series of excavations that proved through artifactual evidence that these mounds were in fact built by Native Americans. So, he has no excuse this is something that's proven you'll notice if you pay attention to claims like this uh whether it comes from john keel or from ancient aliens tv shows or others for some reason it's always you know this impressive thing that people in north america or in, you know in asia or in africa built could not have been built without the help of aliens but the roman coliseum yeah that's totally humans white humans <laughs> So, yeah, it's, it's racist. It's based on some 19th century ideas that, you know, these Indians are not advanced enough to build these things, but it's been proven untrue over and over and over again. They were built by Native Americans. In a later chapter, he claims that there were no Native Americans in West Virginia because West Virginia was just avoided because, well, it was probably just too supernaturally powerful. Okay, there were people of Cherokee, Iroquois, Monahawk, Meherin, Monacan, Nodaway, Okanichi, Saponi, and Shawnee ethno-linguistic groups living in West Virginia. So again, just completely lying about this. (laughs) And as I noted, one of the origin stories given for the Mothman as early as the 1960s is based around a curse that was supposedly left by a Shawnee leader. So dude knew that these people were there and he lied. That's just the only way I can think it could be done. I I don't know. Maybe he genuinely didn't know there was anybody in West Virginia, but I find that hard to believe. A lot of the mound builder sites are what are called effigy mounds, which are made to look like various different, either real animals or mythological creatures. He claims that several of them look like animals that would not have been known to the people of North America because, you know, People in North America can't create mythological creatures the same way that people in Europe do, apparently. But then he also talks about how these things can only really be appreciated if seen from above, which means they must have been made for somebody looking down on them from above. And he's clearly trying to say it's the creatures or whatever it is in UFOs that's looking at them. Okay, so I got two things to say about this. The first is European cathedrals were built in the shape of a crucifix. And you can only appreciate that from above. So clearly, European cathedrals were built to appeal to aliens. The other thing is, let's say that really, you did need to be above to really appreciate these things. Where was this taking place? The Ohio River Valley. You know what's on the sides of valleys? Hills. You know what you can do from hills? You can look down at things on the (laughs) valley floor. So I I just... (laughs) it's racist it's poorly thought out and it's dumb
1: i just wanted i mean i know you have a very long laundry list but i just, I, I've to got, I just
0: got one more thing
1: oh okay Go ahead.
0: and this one it's related to anthropology it's a little bit different though so early in the book he also brings up this idea that you hear in a lot of circles where people want to talk about supernatural lore called the Tolpa, which is the idea that if enough people believe something or if one person believes something strongly enough they can make it exist and it's always credited to, to Tibetan mysticism. Now, I've read some material on this written by people who've actually spent time studying Tibetan Buddhism. And while the term tulpa is the anglicization of a real term from Tibetan Buddhism, it means something very different than thing that we create from you know thinking about it real hard. That idea actually comes from a early 20th century spiritualist who applied this term to the idea of the thought form which existed in spiritualism for at least since the late 19th century so the idea comes from there not from tibet again keel gets it wrong but this one is at least widely enough gotten wrong that i'll give him a little bit of a pass but he's just everything else yeah
1: <laughs> well and that's the thing though you know when you start noticing these these fabrications then it's hard to take everything else that he says without these massive grains of lot wife sized salt pillars because Mm -hmm. you're just like dude like I don't trust you he's an unreliable narrator of a non quote unquote non fiction book which just makes him look like a liar and Mm -hmm. okay like you're gonna give him a little bit of credit or a little bit of leeway on the Tolfa thing so I will warn you listeners there is like racist ass language in this book because it was written in 1975 so every time there was, there's one particular word that he really likes for Asian people. And I know that it was in very common usage in the seventies and in the eighties, I remember in the eighties, it was a thing and then it like shifted and now we use different words, but I bumped on it every single time because I'm sorry, it's 2021 and I'm going to bump on it. And I am not holding that word against him, but I did bump on it. (laughs) And, it, and, it, and part of it was that it was these men in black, right, these nefarious, evil type of men, mostly men, mostly men who would like come around and be all creepy and stuff. And like the way to know that they were creepy and wrong, they were all ethnic, like yeah. that seemed to be the thing, these ethnic people, how dare there be ethnic people in our town? asking questions or shopping or like whatever i mean sometimes they were doing creepy things like asking questions and whatever and sometimes they were like literally standing on the side of the road mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like oh my god i get that you're all a bunch of white honkies that are afraid of outsiders but you gotta be so fucking blatantly bigoted about it it, it was a lot it was a lot to read in this book. yeah
0: now a few things that were going on at the time that i think are pretty valuable to understand the first is that you know 1975 is a period where the u.s government and most u.s residents really began to have to come to terms with the power of china as a country this is um i believe shortly after nixon officially recognizing china as a country and going to visit the leadership uh you have films like the manchurian candidate about you know a uh plot by the Chinese government to carry out an assassination. There was a lot of fear of Asia that was percolating in the 60s and the 70s. And so it's not too terribly surprising that the men in black are frequently described as looking Asian, because frankly, I think that's what John Keel was afraid of.
1: Well, and it's interesting to me, though, that when they would have phone calls and it would be like there was this voice and it was talking too fast and it was speaking some other language, the language that people often said, it sounded like they were speaking Spanish. Mm -hmm. I don't speak Spanish, so I couldn't understand. They were talking so fast and confusing. It sounded like Spanish. And again, like, okay, Ohio River Valley, West Virginia, Asian looking men in black, but speaking Spanish on the phone, I think. Yeah, exactly. It's what people were afraid of and what they don't know and anything different is foreign. Anything different is alien.
0: One other thing that was happening in the mid seventies, Vietnam Wars winding down and we're beginning to bring a lot of people from Southeast Asia into the U S because if they stayed in Southeast Asia, they'd be killed for helping the U S military. And that freaked a lot of people out. I remember as a kid in the eighties meeting a lot of people who just didn't want to have to deal with the boat people
1: from Southeast
0: Asia. So Again, that's something that was happening at this point in time, and I think that that's part of the reason why the men in black are not all, but mostly Asian-looking, yeah. according to John Keel. Another thing that I think worth bringing up is um, John Keel says one thing in this book that I think is absolutely correct. Actually, he says two things that are correct, and they're related to each other.
1: Well, he says where Point Pleasant is located on a map.
0: No, the the two things he says that are correct are that belief and interest in UFOs during the 20th century, especially post-World War II, seems to have risen and fallen alongside interest and belief in the occult generally. And so while a lot of us who are outside of you know, the UFO circles tend to think of it as being a scientific question of, is there life on other planets? And is, are they coming to meet us? And while the answers are often pseudoscientific, that is essentially a scientific question. It's something that's testable that you can you know, try to determine. But spiritualism and general occultism both tend to blend into the UFO circles a fair amount. So while there are people who are interested in UFOs who do think of it purely in these you know, materialistic terms of life from other planets traveling, there's a lot who will do things like use Ouija boards to talk to aliens. And there are UFO cults, which began in the 1950s, who literally worship aliens and think that aliens are coming to save us. I actually I don't know what John Keel's religious background is, but I I wonder if he might be offended by the UFO cults given that he's taken this tact that the you know there are no aliens, they're all from Earth and they're out to get us, and they're trying to fool us into thinking they're from other planets because there is a strain in evangelical Christianity of holding that there are no aliens. There's demons who are trying to convince us there's aliens. I knew people who believed that in doing some research on this, I discovered there's a book called round trip to hell in a flying saucer, which was written by an evangelical Christian trying to warn people away from interest in UFOs. So there seems to be outside of the, you know, in quotes, mainstream materialist question of whether there's life on other planets and whether it's coming here. There seems to be these different camps of people who believe that UFOs are in fact directly tied in with demons and ghosts. And John Keel is giving us his version of that in this book.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because he starts off trying to show us that he's a skeptic. So, you know, people are easily fooled by things. And therefore, you know, you got to take everything, you got to be careful with what you believe. But then by the end, he's like bought into it, hook, line and sinker. And I think that he's doing that to make the point that, but then things really started to happen to me and I couldn't explain them. So I have to believe them. So this is why you should believe me because I didn't want to believe originally, right? That's a much more convincing sort of trajectory in terms of belief. But what what you're saying, and I think it's interesting, is about like that Venn diagram, the overlap of somebody who's going to be open to believing in supernatural things are going to it might be open to believing in extraterrestrial things as long as it doesn't offend or contradict the supernatural belief that they they hold right yeah
0: yeah exactly and the connections between space exploration and occultism go back quite a ways one of the founders of the jet propulsion laboratory oh yeah jack parsons (laughs) was also A founder of a a occult religion Um, and he and L. Ron Hubbard I cannot make this stuff up he and L. Ron Hubbard would engage in magical rituals which might have involved the two of them having sex to cast spells we don't know that for sure but we know that both of them had an interest in sex magic and they were spending a lot of time together out in the desert doing magical things so you know could be
1: but what I think is is interesting, if you get away from like the religious aspect or, you know, the supernatural aspect, and you try to start thinking about it just in the scientific way, you could almost, almost get somebody like myself there. Because like you start talking about multiple dimensions and like how, you know, there's animals that see different spectrums of light than I do, right? You yep. know, you or me as humans. We don't really know what gravity is. Like, gravity is like, is it a byproduct of something else? Like, it's this force, but we don't know what makes it. Or you can get into like quantum physics and really freak your brain out, right? About mm-hmm. all the stuff that we don't understand. And so, to say there could be beings that are on a different plane of existence that maybe interact with us, maybe don't interact with us. And the idea, like, maybe that there's weak parts between these layers of reality that things can come into or out of, and we have multiple dimensions and, and the mere universe and all of those like fun things that are fun to think about and to play with in sci-fi. But there's an element there that when you start getting it again, like you were talking about before, you get overwhelmed with information. And at some point I just have to go, okay, so physicists know more than me. And that might be a thing that's true. I don't know. I'm just gonna put my hands up in the air and say, sure, 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 maybe but I could almost get there, right? You know, Mm -hmm. and I can be like, okay, okay. I can I can kind of, okay. And so then you start telling me that like, maybe that that's what people are seeing are these bleeding through things that almost works. But then you start throwing in all of this other stuff and then it doesn't work anymore for me personally. I'm just like throwing that out there.
0: Yeah, one of the things I often find myself thinking about is, you know, we have a limited range of sound that we can hear. We have a limited range of light that we can see. Our sense of touch is also prone to flaws. The world that we see is not the world as it is. It's the world as our senses allow our brain to construct it. Mm -hmm. The world as it is, you know, we know through scientific work is in many ways much stranger. Mathematically, the idea of multiple dimensions makes sense. But what does that really mean? We know what it means mathematically but does that reflect in reality and if so does that mean that we're living alongside a lot of things that we can't perceive we just don't know and when you stop and think about that that can give you the creeps and i think the movie actually at one point made reference to that when he goes to meet alexander Leek. john keel got split into two characters in this movie yes. the journalist and the freaked out former academic both of whom have names that are variations on keel leak is just keel backwards yeah <laughs> at one point you know he makes a comment about these things simply exist in a different way than we do and they can see things we can't and it, i think what one line in the movie i actually quite liked i thought was quite creepy is you noticed them and they noticed you noticing them <laughs> And that's the explanation for why these creatures are now messing with our hero.
1: Right. Well, he also says, have you ever tried to explain math to a cockroach? Like you're in the same reality, but you experience reality so different that you can't even really communicate to one another. Yeah. Yeah. And again... For for my money, you stick with one thing like that, and it's creepy. But then you start throwing in all these other things, especially things that is so obviously easy to disprove. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. M- years of of recordings and and videos that all all of these tapes just seem to just disappear or get stolen. There's like this very real paranoia. I, I wish that
0: Kayla is referencing something that happens in the book where a lot of john keel's documents as well as film videotape and audio recordings that either he had or that people made with him just suddenly go missing
1: yeah either somebody's stealing them on purpose or that suddenly they get erased or they get damaged in some way or they're just static even though they weren't static the last time i watched them or whatever it is and it's like oh my god like seriously and and i mean that kind of stuff like we don't have ufos as many UFO sightings anymore and I I personally think it has a lot to do with everybody having a video cell phone but that's maybe <laughs> they're there um but yeah i mean it's just it's it's hard to not be a skeptic when everything and especially when like i said he's just throwing things out like oh yeah and if you concentrate you can bend spoons with your brain and also you know there's this and that and the other magical things that i'm just going to pretend are completely real with no explanation
0: and a lot of this i think had to do with john keel's audience you know the 1970s were really a high watermark for interest in the paranormal and the occult in the U S mainstream interest, I should say. Um, You know, this is the period in time when television shows like in search of are very popular. Bigfoot uh, becomes mainstream. (laughs) UFOs had been part of the mainstream pop culture since the 1950s, but the idea of alien abductions rather than people just seeing UFOs starts to really become a mainstream interest in the 1970s. Uh, it's funny I was uh watching something a while back where the person was talking about the film Ghostbusters and saying you know Ghostbusters was the was this revolutionary film because it was the one that said it's okay to have an interest in these weird things and you know before this film that was always frowned upon and you know I just keep thinking this guy is very the guy who made this was very young and it showed because if he'd been older he'd know no 1984 Ghostbusters that's kind of the fizzling out of this much, much bigger interest in the paranormal that was mainstream through the 1970s and early 80s. So John Keel's views really weren't as eccentric in 1975 as they seem to us now.
1: It it is an interesting concept to take this folklore thing and then for John Keel to make it into a book and pretend like, you know, it's non that's nonfiction. I don't, I don't begrudge him. That's fine, that's what he did. I am very still a little confused why they decided to make this into a movie in 2002.
0: But sure. Apparently what happened is the um, screenwriter was a man named Richard Haddam, who I've heard interviewed on a number of different podcasts. Seems like an interesting guy, actually. Apparently, in a bout of insomnia, he went to a bookstore, which means he either works at night and sleeps during the day or where he lives. There's 24 hour bookstores, which Ooh, I tell me would... more yeah. about the 24 hour <laughs> bookstores. <laughs> anyway apparently he found a copy of this book and started reading it in the bookstore and the next day started trying to get John Keel to approve an adaptation he just was so taken with the idea of creating this story of kind of supernatural paranoia and again if you can get through John Keel's weird rantings and get into the story itself I can kind of see the appeal there but You know, I I do think there's a reason why Richard Haddam was probably the first person to ever think this should be a film.
1: (laughs) Well, and then and then to have to change it so much, you know, and that's the thing. The way that they've adapted it, they gave this narrative thing. You're you're feeling much more. Richard Gere's character is much more believable because he's not just a skeptic that, you know, before you even start reading this book as a skeptic turned believer. He is a skeptic who's scared. Like the Mm -hmm. whole time. And like, you know, he doesn't want to believe. And I think it's really telling that they have him not answer the phone when he thinks that it could be his dead wife calling him. Like that's a major choice Mm -hmm. to not answer that phone.
0: I think that was actually a really well made choice on the part of the screenwriter.
1: Yes, I agree. So what I feel like is that this movie had like three maybe storylines going on. We had the death of the wife and the haunting of the wife and his decision to choose to not answer that phone and to Mm -hmm. go somewhere else whether it's a romantic thing or a friendship thing or a, somewhere where there's family or there's more sense of community because at the beginning of the movie, it was him and his wife, but he did, and he had kind of a work friend, but they weren't really close. But then as he's in this town and he's becoming more involved with these people, he's there at the tree lighting ceremony and he's over here and he knows the people and so-and-so broke up with so-and-so and he's being told and he's made friends with the guy who held him at gunpoint at the beginning. You know, he's part of this little town and there's definitely like this, city versus country duality going on in this movie in a very major way he is the city slicker who has found that the small town is 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 not as rural and rustic and weirdo bumpkin as he might have assumed you know he has he's a little bit of character girl with with that and he's choosing that over his sophisticated city life with the potential of talking to the dead wife on the phone like he makes that choice and I thought it was really well done that is like one story
0: what you're saying is he dragged his weird supernatural thriller into a romantic comedy
1: I well I wouldn't say romantic comedy I would say drama because he's dealing with his grief and I know you're joking but that that is one story and I think that story was done very well actually Mm -hmm. And and I really I like Richard Gere as a as a as an actor and I liked watching him go through that thing, and it was tragic watching Deborah Messing died. And you're know, like, the whole thing, fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then you have country cop lady Carol Mills. So we have her, and she is now like investigating this creepy moth guy what's going on in my town and like people are hearing things and people are seeing things and there's all this this weirdness going on and we don't really know what it is and she's had a prophetic dream and like maybe that means she's gonna die and blah 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 blah. and and then kind of like the bridge is its own story it's kind of connected to that but then the culmination of that is Again, Richard Gere, like saving her from the water. So that's where we're going to bridge them in together. And I, there might've even been like something else. I, I don't know. Like, so I, that's my point is too many things that weren't done particularly well. The Richard Gere mm-hmm. death of the wife, that part was done excellently. And then the, just the ambiance of the creepiness and the eeriness and the unsettling feeling was done fairly well. It would have been done excellently if they had just toned it down a little bit. It was just, like I said before, kind of excessive. It sucks because it could have been so much so much more, so much more scary, I think, or more meaningful if we'd been mm-hmm. allowed to actually sit with some of those like human things because yeah... Monsters are monsters. But the reason we read books and watch movies and TV and whatever is this human connection. And so you want to see how humans deal with stuff and how a human deals with a with an alien or a mind reader is not an experience that we're all going to have, but how humans deal with loss and trying to accept that loss is something that we do have to deal with. So and, and I'm sorry, but having the mind reader guy, like, know that you're holding chapstick in your hand <laughs> is just, it just takes it out. Like, I love that he was like, I'm going to trick this. I'm going to put my watch in my shoe and shove my shoe under the bed, you know? And like, so like, I get that, but I'm sorry. Chapstick, they, that was the thing. What's in my hand? Chapstick. No, 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 no. It, it's it, just it, silly.
0: It, it's conceptually funny, but there's just no scary way to say the term chapstick.
1: And I had to wonder if that was not product placement, right? It could, it could be. It literally showed the tube, right? Yeah. Well,
0: and the thing is that right up until you hear the creature say chapstick, it was actually a pretty creepy scene. And yes. then it's chapstick and it's like, okay, I'm trying not to laugh now. You guys,
1: that part's in the preview, okay? Like in the preview, it says chapstick. And so you're like, okay, so this is this is the move. Okay, this is where we're going with this, but yeah.
0: Yeah, but one of the things that's interesting to me is that I think the book's a product of its time. The film's a product of its time. And I think that the things that were cut out, some of it was changed simply to create a coherent narrative so you could understand what was happening. Mm-hmm. But some of it was responding to the world, you know, as it, as it is at the time. So, you know, a lot of the kind of UFO paranoia that Keel writes about is, I think, tied into the anxieties of the time world's becoming much more technological and dependent on electricity power outage becomes scary in a way that it wouldn't have been to people in the 1930s all of these uh creatures look asian well people are really afraid of asia and of asians at this point in time the idea that these creatures are brainwashing people into thinking that they're their friends well the 1970s was a time when people were really worried about cults you take the movie made in 2002 and, you know, what are the things that we tend to be really worried about now? Well, there's the idea of the, you know, stranger danger, right? This idea that um, people we don't know could come in and do us harm. Well, the Mothman kind of serves that purpose. The question of are our leaders or the people we trust leading us in the right direction? I mean, this is post 9-11. It's something that people are thinking about. Indrid Cold comes with promises, seems to tell the truth, and then leads... Uh, one of the characters to literally die of the cold. So Indrid Cold is apparently well-named. You see the police not able to actually manage whatever weirdness is happening. So there's this sort of distrust of institutions that was pretty prominent in the early 2000s. So I, I think that both speak to the worries of the time when they were put out there. I think that the book is much more of a time capsule of the weird ass worries of the 1970s than the film is a time capsule of the weird ass worries of the early 2000s, but it is what it is. Agreed. So one thing that comes up a lot in the books is the idea that these creatures, whatever they are, need blood. They might need death. They definitely seem to need blood. So cattle mutilations, dog mutilations comes up a lot those get tied into ufos they also get tied into cults so again it's a place where ufos and fears of the occult come together keel at one point says that ufos seem to have this weird ability to find women when they're menstruating and he ties that in again he's already demonstrated that he just makes shit up when he's going on about the archaeological stuff so i'm not inclined to believe that he actually has ever seen a pattern like that but maybe there's one i don't know
1: and because I just did interview with the vampire and because I'm a Buffy fan, when you talk about it being blood and it had to be all about the blood, I immediately thought of this spike quote, and I'm going to read it to you because I can because because is my podcast. <clears throat> why blood? Someone asks, why couldn't it be like, you know, a lymph ritual or something? Why does it have to be a blood ritual? And this vampire says, because it's always got to be blood. Blood is life. Why do you think we eat it? And what keeps you going makes you warm makes you hard makes you other than dead of course it's blood a good a good quote it's all about the blood yep all about the blood about the blood keep pumping blood all is about... symbolically
0: important to humans always has been
1: yes did you know
0: all right so time for trivia yes
1: um, in reality when that bridge went down 46 people died that silver bridge, not 36 as depicted by the film. The motion pictures claim at the end credits of the collapse of the silver bridge never being explained is also false. The incident was found to be caused by the failure of an eye bar in a suspension chain in 1970. Well, well before the publication of the book. So he totally knew that too. Liar, liar, pants on fire. But they said that they didn't want to say in the film that it was 46. So they said 36 because that's less tragic and I I don't know maybe 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 I'm callous but it doesn't feel like it's a huge difference I feel like if you change 400 to 103 that's a big change but from 46 to 36 okay here's a fun thing though they decided to say 36 okay apparently was the director's father's sports number on a jersey or something but in actuality it didn't even have to be that there were 36 cars on the bridge and 46 people died they mm-hmm. could have just kept the 36 from that whatever they didn't find by the way speaking of that director mark pellington he said this movie is really very fictionalized we probably should have said inspired by true events rather than quote based on true events yeah yeah i think it should have okay a couple more things one The soundtrack listing song Half Light, which plays over the credits, the movie credits for the song say additional lyrics by Injured Cold, the Mothman character in the movie. Towards the end of the song, there is a muffled whispering voice similar to one of the prophetic voices heard in various times in the movie. The voice continues just past the end of the song into the end of the credits, but the words are indiscernible. I got more on Injured Cold in a second, but my last kind of fun piece of trivia. The clock radio in John Klein, Richard Gehrer's motel room reads 614. It's a biblical reference to John chapter six, verse 14, which reads, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Okay. Here is your Star Trek trivia, because I know you're here for this. Speaking of that director, Mark Pellington, he was a bartender in the movie as well. He made a cameo. I don't remember a bartender, but apparently- there I was do. Bar- Where was the bar? bartender?
0: At one point, Richard Gere is in a basement bar kind of trying to- Oh come to yeah, of some of what's going when on the around. girl
1: gives him the letter. That's right. Okay. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> I noticed the girl, not the bartender. Okay. But anyways, that bartender, Mark Pellington, he also did the voice of Indrid Cold. Huh. That's the director on the phone. Okay. And he- was the director and producer who directed two episodes of star trek short treks the q a one and the children of mars one he also provided the baul voice over in the star trek discovery second season episode the sound of thunder so there you go all right fun star trek trivia for us this week Okay, Matthew. It is time. I think I feel like we've kind of answered it, so we'll we'll just make our sum ups short and sweet cuz holy smokes we've been talking for a while. But was this book worth your time? Was this movie worth your time?
0: The book is worth the time of anybody who is interested in the development of supernatural folklore as a case study. If you want to read something enjoyable or you want to read something coherent, don't Bother. It is terribly written and full of factual inaccuracies. It's just a terrible book. The film, I enjoyed it well enough. I'd say that if you want something creepy and you're not too demanding, it's worth it. If it happens to be on TV and you're just channel surfing, stop and watch it. You might enjoy it. But uh, I will say that there's a reason why we didn't end up with a Mothman cinematic universe
1: fair yes okay i i mostly agree with you i the book i would say it, it was not worth my time uh because it's not the kind of non-fiction that i like i like my nonfiction to be clearly non-fiction and to teach me something interesting about the world and i like my fiction to make sense as fiction so i i did not like the writing style i did not like the lack of atmosphere i didn't like or care about any of the characters i found john appeal to be unreliable in all the worst ways, not in a fun, is he drunk? And maybe not remembering who actually did the murder kind of unreliable way, but like, you know, this guy's like lying to me and either thinks I'm too stupid or whatever to care. I, I just, no, it was profoundly uninteresting personally, again, like Matthew said, if you're like, Hey, I wonder what people were reading in the late seventies about UFOs and, and what were the, the formative books of the people involved in this, that, and the other, then by all means, but then it's a research thing, not just like a fun book. And there might even be other versions out there that are other things that might answer that question in a better way. I don't know. It's not my thing. The movie I, okay. I I was going to ask you this at the beginning. I don't know if I've seen this movie before. I feel like I have, but then I, then I can't really remember it. So I think either I watched it and it was so long ago, like maybe in the theater, but I also might've fallen asleep because I used to do that a lot, especially when we would go see movies or watch them at night. So it was fine. It was creepy. It was eerie. I definitely think that there's good things about the direction and Pellington did Arlington Road, right before this one or right after? I think it was right before. That movie is really well done too. Like, okay, the direction is good. It was just a little over edited for me. And again, I like I said before, I think that the, the the grief story and the tragedy of the wife, like that was really good. Not in the book, but a lot of it, I was just kind of like, okay, this is this is we're just we're just here now, and. I was bored and you shouldn't be bored watching a scary movie it shouldn't it shouldn't bore you but i was lit- i was bored and mm. then i felt like there wasn't enough of a payoff i will say that the bridge coming down was scary there was a couple of jump scares there was a couple of intense moments there was definitely the atmosphere was there and uh, Matthew, you even said this bridge coming down was a lot like the Bay Bridge in the 89 earthquake. Yeah, and I,
0: I definitely found myself thinking back on watching footage of the Bay Bridge during the 89 earthquake. And it was that made this even more frightening right. for me so, than I think it would have been otherwise.
1: I personally don't like bridges to begin with, I don't like overpasses. So. <laughs> was that was a little scary although i again because it's a movie we had to get richard Gere out of the car so he could run around on the bridge and yell at people and i just i don't i don't know like mm, fine whatever and then he has to jump in somehow when all the other cars and cement and things are falling and somehow he can do a purple swan dive purple swan dive perfect swan dive into the water to save the one person none of the other people but this one person I just, I, and also, I don't know if you caught it, but his gloves were on in some of those shots and then not on in other shots, which is like a weird continuity thing. But if it's noticeable, it takes me out. So I don't know. It was over edited. It was, it was okay. I would say there's probably other better, scarier things, but if you're a film studies major, or you just really want to learn how, you know, about direction and stuff, I should go look up and see if Arlington road is based on a book because that was really good.
0: You know, one thing about the movie, it just occurred to me now, is that a lot of the vehicles that uh, were seen, not all of them, a lot of them were per, you know, modern vehicles as of 2002 when the film was made, but there was a lot of fairly prominently displayed vehicles from the 1960s and 1970s, which I am assuming was a callback to when events happened and the book was written, but just something I noticed when we were watching.
1: Hmm. I don't know. Oh, one, one little fun thing that I just, I just have to read to you is that Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times, as you know, he gave this movie two stars out of four. He called it unfocused, but praised the direction. I almost used this beginning of Roger Ebert's review as my the beginning of my recap of the movie because this is how his review starts Richard Gere stars as a Washington Post reporter named John Klein who is so happily married to Deborah Messing that when they agree to buy a new house they decide to test the floor of a closet for lovemaking purposes to the surprise of the real estate agent who walks in on them if there's one thing you demand in a real estate agent it's the good judgment to leave a closet door closed when you hear the unmistakable sounds of coitus coming from behind it Furthermore, gear is 53. He's in great shape. But to make love at 53 on the floor of a closet with a real estate agent lurking about is, I submit, not based on a true story.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It, It does make me wonder, though, is that something you're supposed to do? Because when we bought our house, we did not test the closet. And I feel like we did something wrong now.
1: I mean, to be fair, I also didn't die in a car accident the very next day. So maybe we did something profoundly correct.
0: Oh, so what you're saying is that it, contrary to what the Alexander Leak says, it's not that you noticed them and they noticed you noticing them. It's that they saw you getting busy in the closet. And then they decided to fuck up your life.
1: What, a closet with a magical light. Okay. You walk oh, into and the that bedroom. That moth
0: floating around. Bo- around yes. It. Okay. Of yeah. course.
1: Right. Because the, the moth, you know, this is what happened. I, I have it figured out. So they walk into this, this room, this bedroom. They turn on a switch and a light in a closet across the room turns on. So they walk into this closet. They close the door behind them. And now suddenly there's a pool chain. They pull the pool chain. So now the light has gone off right? Okay. Then the real estate agent comes in, hears them having sex in this closet in the dark, turns that original light on out there. So now the light in their closet has come on and now the moth is fuzzing around and they're all frustrated. I think that the moth is just pissed because it was hiking a nap. Then the light was on. Then the light was off. Then the light's back on. Somebody's in its closet getting busy. That's, I mean, really, that's why I like candles, Matthew. Gotta get rid of all the moths in the house before we have sex in all the rooms.
0: So what you're saying is the moth is rather like the mice in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and that it's just a projection into our universe of a astoundingly powerful and intelligent being. Yes. That was really grumpy because they woke up yes. from its nap. Yes. That makes sense. Okay.
1: That about sums up this episode, this beautiful, wonderful crossover episode. <laughs> you heard it here first. People don't kill moths. Um, unless they're pantry moss, because they are from the devil
0: just remember the show comes to you for free and we have a money back guarantee
1: <laughs> there you go we hope you enjoyed this crossover episode as half as much as we did making it and three times as much as i did reading the book because i did not not enjoy reading the book so much but, but- we hope
0: you don't enjoy it as much as you might enjoy the closet of a house you're thinking
1: of buying <laughs> i'm gonna leave that one alone if you would like to know more about either Ghostthropology or Pages and Popcorn Podcast, check out KMMAMedia.com. You'll find all the information about both shows there. Someday if we make another show, it will also be there. There's ideas, there's potential. We'll see what happens. And happy Halloween. By the time y'all listen to this, it's probably the day after Halloween, but this episode will come out on Halloween. So happy Halloween, everybody. We hope you've enjoyed the Spooky Pages and Popcorn Podcast episodes this month. And Ghost Apology is going to be back in November from your hiatus with a bunch of new episodes. So Technically,
0: I'm back with this episode.
1: Technically, you are. That's so true. Anyways, thank you so much, Matthew. This was fun. I don't remember if you came up with Mothman Prophecies or I did. did. This is
0: all your fault. (laughs) I'm sorry. In fact, (laughs) when we were reading the book, I read it. And then Kalia read it after me. And when she was about 10 or 15 pages into it, I walked in the room. She looked at me and said, I am so sorry for painting
1: this. <laughs> that, that is true. That That is what happened. Um, okay. Well, this was fun. Thank you. Thank you. You want to hear something creepy? The way you're holding your head, not now, but like right like that. The light is reflecting on your headset, and it looks mm-hmm. like there's two eyes on that side. They keep blinking in and out at me every time you move your head. Now, there.
0: Mm, yeah, I see it.
1: Right. Boom.
0: It's the Mothman.
1: It is. It's like these these creepy little eyes that just come out, and the cat keeps staring the crap out of me because she's running mm-hmm. behind the camera, and I just see movement or jumping on my chair.
0: Spooky. Spooky. That's not how you say it.